Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are continuing the 1689 Baptist Confession. I felt like last week I probably packed too much information in one session. It was a lot. And so tonight we're just going to look at two paragraphs in chapter 3 on God's decree. And the reason why is this is a doctrine that is very controversial. It may be something you've never heard of before. And it is something that may cause you a lot of confusion. It brings up a lot of questions. And so I want to go slow and I want to read from the Bible because every time I teach on this topic, there seems to be um, some scratching of heads or disagreements. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm preempting that by saying I'm not expecting you. This, this week and next week is a topic that's, that's pretty theologically uh, loaded. Okay, so I'll just tell you right off the top of the bat. Um, this week, so chapter 3 deals with God's sovereignty and the doctrine of predestination. And so instead of dealing with predestination and God's sovereignty on one night, we're going to deal with predestination next week. So I want to begin by asking a question. Is God absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things? Okay, now there's two words there, absolutely and meticulously. And I think I've asked this before. Did I ask this last week? If I did, I've asked it in multiple. Okay, so what does it mean that God is absolutely sovereign? It means he's sovereign over everything. What does meticulously sovereign mean? He's sovereign over the minute details. Okay, so what we're going to talk about tonight is God's sovereign decree. So, we are in chapter 3, God's Sovereign Decree. And so, again, we're only going to deal with paragraphs 1 and 2 because paragraph 1 has a lot of qualifiers and theological issues that we've just got to deal with. Okay, so we're on page 16. We're in chapter 3, God's Decree, paragraph 1. Is everybody there? Okay. From all eternity... God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, they are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. Okay, so let's just talk about decree. What does it mean that God has a decree? What we're saying is, is that God had a sovereign plan, or a sovereign intention, or a purpose that he made in eternity past, that will infallibly be fulfilled in time. And it's a decree that doesn't change. It's a decree that's powerful. Now, did God have to be forced to make this decree? No. 
Did anybody come in and say, God, you have to do this? Was there anything that obligated God to make his decree or make his decision? Okay, so there's no outside force working on God to make him do it. Okay, we can understand that. Nobody's telling God what to do. But the question that's controversial is, is God's decree contingent on the free will actions of creatures? In other words, does God do things in response to what he foresees people going to do? Or is it a decree that's sovereignly his, regardless of any contingencies? So let's talk about last week. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the attributes of God. And one of the attributes of God is that he is self-existent. That he, we call it the aseity of God. He's, he's the great I am, which means he can do whatever he wants to because he's the great I am. So God, because he is self-existent, can make a decree without consulting anybody when he does that. Okay, so let's just look at a few scriptures, uh, especially from the Psalms. So Psalm 33, 10 through 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The, the, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. He frustrates the plans of the people. God's got a plan. Okay, Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. Okay, now here's the argument. This is a theological argument. So we're, we're thinking theologically tonight. So let me just stop. Sometimes when you think about God, such an infinite God, there are some direct statements in the Bible that teach about who God is. And from those statements, we make theological conclusions that may not have an exact Bible verse, but because of the logic and the understanding of who God is, we're safe to make a conclusion. Is everybody okay with that? Or are you not okay with that? Because some people would say, I'm not going to believe anything about God unless I have an actual Bible verse 100% to prove it. Now, yes, everything we believe about God, there's a Bible verse. But when you think theologically, there may not be an actual verse that explicitly teaches something, but it flows from a clear verse. There's a conclusion that's made from that. Okay, so here's the argument that's kind of the, the conclusion made from who God is. So here, here's the argument. Since God in himself is eternal and unchangeable. So God, would you guys agree, God's eternal, he's unchangeable in his being. His decree or his plan must also have existed from all eternity and also be unchanging. If God's eternal, his decree is eternal. If God's unchanging, his decree is unchanging. When did God make this decree? Before the creation of the world. Okay, now we can't really conceive about some. I said last week, it's hard to conceive of eternity going backwards. We can think of eternity going forwards because we're linear thinkers. So God's plans and purposes can't be separated from his being. Okay, so if God is eternal, his plan must be also eternal. So what I'm not saying is this. Does God make plans on the fly when he sees people doing things and responds in real time to kind of clean up people's messes? 
Or did God have a sovereign plan that's working out in time exactly the way God wanted to do it? Okay, well, what about free will? We're going to talk about that tonight. Okay? Now, God is eternal. So being probably greatest passage of scripture that teaches the sovereignty and the decree of God is Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This is kind of my go-to passage. This is kind of the go-to passage that, that teaches God's sovereign decree. So here's what it says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Okay. There's no one like God. And what's, what's God going to do? Listen to what it says. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my purpose shall stand and I will fulfill all my intentions. Now, I don't have all the verse there, so I'm gonna, actually, we don't have verse 11 there. So I'm not sure why I did, but open your Bibles to, let's, let's look at the whole passage here. So let, open your Bibles to Isaiah 46. It's actually, I wanna look at nine through 11 because there's three, these verses go together. Let's read it again in your, in your own Bible. So let's actually, well, let's start back in verse 8. So Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my own counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I purpose, and I will do it. Okay, so when God says ancient times, things not yet done, that's talking about eternity past. And it's talking about things that haven't happened yet. And so there are three... We call them participles, and you can see those in your English translations because they all end in I-N-G. So God does three things in this passage of Scripture. He says, I am the Lord. There's none like me. So he, he says, I, he's declaring the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel will stand, and calling a bird of prey. So these, these three things work together. What, what's God doing? Okay, so first of all, God is declaring. So what's, so what's God declaring? God is declaring the end from the beginning. He's declaring the end from the beginning. Now, let's just ask some questions here. Does God merely predict the future? Does God learn knowledge? Does God foresee contingencies and then react? Or does God declare it because the future is decreed by him as well? Does it say God predicts the end from the beginning or God declares it? Okay, now, what does it mean to declare? When you declare something, like in the South, I declare. <laughs> what does that mean? But when you declare something, what do you do? You make a pronouncement, a statement. You're saying, all right, all these words have something to do with what? Speaking. Okay, so this is very important. The Bible, this is what we call speech act. Speech act. 
When God says something in the Bible, things happen as a result of God speaking. What happened at creation? God spoke. Now, let's think about this. Could God have thought the universe into existence? Could God have waved his hand in the universe? Why did God speak it? God spoke it because there's power in God's word. So when God says he's going to do something, does that mean it's going to happen? In other words, let me ask it a different way. When God says he's going to do something, is there potentiality there or is it like emphatically going to happen? It's going to happen. Okay, so what is God declaring? He's declaring the end from the beginning. God is declaring all things that are going to happen. He's making a sovereign decree. Okay, and the second thing, so that's the first, he's declaring. Second, there in verse, second half of verse 10, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Not I might, but I will accomplish all my purposes. And what does he say there? My counsel shall stand. The the Hebrew word there for stand is absolute. It means it's going to happen. It's going to stand. You can't stop what I'm going to declare, what I'm going to decree, what I'm going to plan. Now, third, he's calling... A bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Now, what in the world is this all about? If you go back in Israelite history, this is in reference to King Cyrus of Persia. You remember who King Cyrus of Persia was? He was the foreign king that allowed the Israelites to come out of Babylonian captivity and go back to Jerusalem. So God, this is a prophecy of of what's going to happen. This is why some people don't believe Isaiah was written by Isaiah, they would say, oh, this is written after the Jews came back, because how would Isaiah predict Cyrus was going to do this? He, he, he predicted that he wrote this before it happened. So what's God saying? I'm going to raise up a foreign leader named King Cyrus, and he's going to send the Jews back. And so at the end of verse 11, what does God say? He's got four emphatic statements. What does he say? I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I purposed. I will do it. Now, in the original language, there's this um, little word, af, which means I have surely spoken. I will surely bring it to pass. I've surely purposed it. I will surely do it, meaning absolutely. So four times God says, I've spoken. This This refers to the initiation of God's plan. I will bring it to pass. This refers to the execution of God's plan. Third time. Okay, God, we we get the point. (laughs) I have purposed it. This is a reminder that God alone did it with no outside influence. And then fourth, he says, I will do it. Refers to the fact that God will successfully accomplish his plan. Now, here's my question for you. Why does God repeat it four times? Why does God say it four times? I'm going to do it. 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 Because nobody listens, okay. So we get it through our heads. Okay. Now, back then, on ancient scrolls, in an oral tradition, they didn't have highlighters, pens to underline, 
bold, all caps. What will we do today? Highlight, bold, asterisks, all caps. It's like a way to just like show us emphatically God means what he says. He's going to do it. So if God has an eternal decree that he made by himself with no outside influence, is he going to accomplish it? Yes. Now the question becomes, how? I don't know. You don't know. Is God going to accomplish it? Yes. Okay, that, that's a mystery we'll deal with. So Ephesians 1.11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And here's the important thing. Who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. What's God working out? All things. According to what? The counsel of his will. Acts 15, 8 is an interesting statement. It says, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knows what he's doing from all eternity. And then another Isaiah passage, Isaiah 45, 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who's declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. In other words, this is a section in Isaiah where God brings the false idols on trial and basically says, hey, false idols, speak. Predict the future. Tell about the past. And basically all these idols are just like silent because they're wood. And God kind of mocks them and makes fun of them and says like, can you guys create? Can you guys bring things to naught? Can you guys predict the future? No, you can't. And so God's saying, I'm the only God who can do this. So let me give you a quote from Lorraine Bettner. And um, again, this is, this is kind of a theological statement. What God foreknows must, in the very nature of the case, be as fixed and certain as what is foreordained. Foreordination renders the event certain, while foreknowledge presupposes that they are certain. Now, if future events are foreknown to God, they cannot by any possibility take a turn contrary to his knowledge. Furthermore, if the acts of free agents are in themselves uncertain, God must then wait until the event has had its issue before making his plan. To deny the perfect foreknowledge and immutability is to represent him as a disappointed and unhappy being who is often checkmated and defeated by his creatures. Okay, that's a long quote, but let me ask you a question. Can there be anything that happens other than what God decreed to happen? Why? Okay. Now, at first glance, you may say, okay, that brings up a lot of questions about human agency, about human decisions. Are we just puppets? Are we automatons? Are we just like writing out a script that's been written for us and we have no real choice? Okay? So let me give you a... The, the founding fathers of our nation had a somewhat of a Christian background, but many of them were what we would call deists. A deist, D-E-I-S-T, or deism, is basically the idea that God created... And God set everything in motion, 
And then he was hands off and just kind of lets creation and humans work out the details as they go on. Like a distant God, a hands off God. The old illustration was a watchmaker. God winds up the watch. He makes the watch. He winds up the watch. And then he leaves and lets the watch do its course. If the watch breaks, he doesn't come in and fix it. Just lets the watch. He started it, but it's up to humans to kind of finish it. And God won't intervene. That's deism. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is intimately involved in his creation. The question is how? So, what the Confession and the Westminster as well, both the Westminster and the Second London, what they've done is they have provided, and this is very, very important, three fences, I call them fences, or truths that qualify God's decree. So we hold to what the Bible says and not go off the rails into some faulty thinking. Okay, they did a very careful job here of giving three fences or three guardrails to make sure we qualify what we mean by God being absolutely sovereign. Okay, because here's the first thing you would think of. Well, if everything that happens is decreed by God and evil happens, then God must be the one who created evil or God must be the author of sin. God ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and sin comes to pass. God must be the one that brought the sin about. Okay, so here's, here's fence number one, qualification number one. God is not the author of sin or the direct cause of sin. God is not the author of sin or the direct cause of sin. And we know this because of what James teaches. James 1, 13 through 15. No one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by his own desire, being allured and enticed by it, then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. God does not directly cause you to sin, and God did not directly sin, and God has no part in sin. Now, brings up a question. What about Adam? Did God know Adam was going to sin? Did God make Adam sin? No. Did God ordain that Adam would sin? Yes. Did Adam sin freely? Yes. Do we have to live with the results of Adam's sin? Are we sinners because of Adam's sin? Okay. So God does not have to force us to sin or work in us to sin or tempt us to sin because we're born with that propensity already to sin because of what we inherited from Adam. So 1 John 1.5 says this. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So who are the authors of sin? Two, Satan and man. Satan was the first one that sinned. Adam sinned. Now, it's very important back in history. Remember that first night we met, I don't expect you to remember all the dates and all the documents, but in 1645, the Westminster Assembly, the, now the 1689 borrows a lot from the Westminster, they published a pamphlet because there was a pastor in England his name was John Archer, 
And John Archer was teaching that God was the author of sin. He was teaching that God was the author of sin. So the Westminster Assembly that was working on the Westminster Confession of Faith, they produced a pamphlet. Now, let me give you the title of a pamphlet, okay? This is back during the Puritan days, okay? When you think of a pamphlet, you think of a small title. Here's the pamphlet back in those days. You ready? Here we go. Quote, a short declaration of the assembly divines by way of detestation of this abominable and blasphemous opinion that God is and had a hand in and is the author of the sinfulness of people. Bottom line, what they were saying was, this is not what the Bible teaches. And this is not what the reform teaches. And there's a quote in that. It says, Satan and man himself are the only causes or authors of sin. Okay, so God is not the author of sin. Now, we have to back up, though. God did ordain the fall of Adam. And God ordained the effects of the fall. And what are the effects of the fall? We have, we, we become slaves to sin. We are born with the sin nature. So, for God to ordain that the fall would happen or permit it to happen, and Adam did it freely, and we sin freely because of our nature, protects God from being the direct cause or author of sin. Adam sinned freely, and God did not force him to do it. What do we inherit from Adam? Sin. What do we do? We sin freely because of our nature to sin. Okay? So number one, fence Yes, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He's got a sovereign decree, but he's not the author of sin. Okay, number two. Fence number two. God's absolute decree does not violate man's free will as he is still responsible and acts according to his nature. All right. Let me give you the objection to God's sovereign decree by those that don't like it. The objection is this. If God is sovereign over everything, then he must force, force is the word they use, God must force us to act the way we do. And if God forces us to act the way we do, that removes responsibility because I'm only doing what God forced me to do. So they would say, if we sin, we're not really responsible for sinning because we're only doing what God forced us to do. So how can you be held accountable for something you're forced to do? So let me ask you a question. Does God force or coerce you against your will to sin? Why do you sin? Because you want to sin. So can God determine that we are born sinners and we act according to our nature. Can God decree that? Yes. And can we still freely act according to our natures without God directly causing us to act the way we do? Yes. I'm going to stop there. I know I said this is deep into the water tonight. Are there any questions before we go? Because I want to make sure we understand what's going on here. God does not force us to sin. We sin freely because of our nature. And you may blame God and say, well, God, the only reason I'm sinning is because of Adam. And you're right. I mean, you kick the can as far back as you want to, and you have to say at some point, God either permitted or ordained or allowed all this to happen for a purpose. Adam sinned. It didn't surprise God. 
the results of Adam's sin did not surprise God. And so you were always, so we'll talk about this later. As a sinner, you have free will. You have free will to do what you want to do spiritually and morally. And what will that always be? What? God's will. No, as a sinner. Oh. As a sinner, as a sinner sinner that's not saved by grace, you will always act freely to do what your heart wants to do. And what your heart gonna always want to do? Sin. Sin. So unless God changes your heart through causing you to be born again, you're always gonna act upon your nature. So for example, if I like pepperoni pizza versus anchovies, I'm always gonna choose pepperoni because I don't like anchovies because it's in my nature to choose pepperoni. I'm always gonna choose pepperoni. That's a physical example of food. Morally and spiritually, because you're dead in sin, you're never going to do the right thing. You're always going to sin because that's your nature. So, yes, you have free will, but your will is in bondage to only do that which is contrary to God's will. So, God never for- so number one, God's not the author of sin. And number two, God does never violate your free will by forcing you to sin or forcing you to do something against your will. You will always act in accordance with your nature. Okay, and number three, and this is the important one. This is the one I want to spend some time on. Num- this is fence number three. God uses secondary causes to accomplish his decree. Okay. What are primary and secondary causation? So primary means the first mover, right? The first person that ordains something. So in everything, who's the primary cause of everything? God. What's a secondary cause? a human, an event, Satan, or whatever. So I want us to think of God's decree in two aspects, okay? This is historically how it's been understood. First, God's decree is effective because it directly, this is a key language here, God directly causes all good to happen. So if there's any good, any blessing, any salvation, anything good, God directly caused that good to happen. Okay, directly caused it. But secondly, God's decree is permissive in that he permits indirectly by secondary causes all the evil to happen. See the difference? God directly causes good. God indirectly permits evil. Is there a difference in that language? Directly cause indirectly permit. What's the difference between causing and permitting? Cause would be God is the primary direct cause. Permit would be God allows it to happen and it can happen through secondary means. Now let me give you an example. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 50, 20. Joseph and his brothers. Do you guys remember the story of Joseph? I think last year we did the life of Joseph, didn't we? Like last, a year ago about this time, didn't we do the life of Joseph on Wednesday nights? I can't remember. But Joseph was thrown into a pit when he was 17. His brothers were going to kill him, but they left him for dead. So let me ask you a question. Did his brothers act with evil in their heart? Did their brothers act treacherously? Did their brothers, did his brothers sin? Okay, all right. But listen to how Joseph describes what happened to him. 
So at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, this is at the very end. Jacob is dead at this time, and so Joseph is already reunited with his brothers. They've made up. Life is good. But now that Jacob's dead, the brothers are afraid now that maybe Joseph's going to exact revenge on him now that Jacob's out of the way, and Joseph doesn't do that. He calms him down, and listen to what he says. He's talking to his brothers there in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, he's talking to the brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right. I want you to pay careful attention to the words here. What word is used, at least in the ESV? You what? Meant. Okay, there's, there's one word there. You meant evil for me. All right, so let's look at it like this. The brothers, what did the brothers do? They meant evil, right? But who else is acting in that verse? God, what? Meant meant the evil to turn out good, right? Okay, so who are the two actors in this passage of Scripture? You've got it listed right there. God and the brothers. But you've got one verb, meant. Let's ask the question, what does meant mean? Does it say God used their evil? God responded to their evil? Let me tell you what the word meant means in the original language. It meant to weave, like a weaver. It also means to devise, to strategize, to determine. It was often used as an army going to war. They would put together a battle plan or a strategy. Intend. Plan. Okay, so we can use the word intend, plan, devise, whatever word you want to use. So the brothers meant evil. God meant good. Let's ask a question. When the brothers were acting evilly, did they know they were carrying out God's plan? No. What were they doing? They were acting out of their own heart to do what they wanted to do. Okay. But in that action, they were fulfilling God's plan for what would eventually happen. So who's... Whose plan was it? God's. Did God directly put a gun to the head of Jacob's brothers and said, you're going to go do this? Did he have to do that? No, they acted out of the wickedness of their own heart. But in their secondary causation of acting wickedly, doing what they wanted to do, they at the same time were carrying out what God wanted to do. So, you could say it this way. Joseph's brothers were free to do what they wanted to do. God was free to do what God wanted to do. The brothers did what they wanted to do, and God did what he wanted to do. In the end, the brothers did what God wanted them them, them to do without them knowing that God wanted them to do that so that God's plan got accomplished because God wanted it to happen. Okay, now that may blow your mind there for a moment. Does Does that make sense? Okay, so this is like on the human level, When you're living your life, 
You're making actions. You're making choices. You're not being forced to do things. But at the same time, it could what you're doing is fulfilling God's sovereign plan towards his end. And you may 2020 look back and say, oh, that's what, that's what God was doing in the midst of that. I had no idea. So secondary causation. So God's got a sovereign decree. God's got a sovereign plan. He often executes that plan through human choices that are not coerced, but in doing that, they're accomplishing what God wanted to happen. Okay. We good there? Or is that too confusing? All right. Just in, just in case you thought we were confusing a lot, let's go to the book of Job. All right, so let's go to the Job chapter one. And I want to show you very clearly, again, we're under this big topic of secondary causation. God is absolutely sovereign. Is God the, and God determines whatsoever comes to pass. Is God the author of sin? No. Does God force people to do things against their will? No. Does God accomplish his will through secondary causes? Yes. What's the example of that? Joseph and his brothers. Let's talk about Job. Let's just read. When's the last time you kind of dove into Job? Let's pick up in verse 6. Chapter 1. Let's just, let's just work carefully through this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Okay, it's not that God doesn't know where he was. God often does this, like with Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. It's more like to bring him out into the courtroom. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, this is not encouraging. Okay, So this is happening in the cosmic theater. Job has no idea what's going on. God points Job out to Satan. Say, have you, have you thought about going and attacking my servant Satan? And basically what's Satan, I mean, Job, and what, and what does Satan say about Job? I'll paraphrase. God, the only reason he's worshiping you is because you blessed him. You take all that stuff away, he'll curse you. Like the prosperity gospel. He's, he's only worshiping you, God, because you've given him a bunch of stuff. But if you take the stuff away from him, he'll curse you on a dime. And God says, okay, you go attack Job. Take everything he has, but don't touch his life. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Who is ordaining the suffering to happen to Job? God. Who's he giving permission to go inflict harm upon Job? Satan. So who's primary and who's secondary? God's primary. Does God directly inflict Job? 
He permits Satan to do it. Now, let's ask a question. Does Satan directly inflict Job? Or is there another secondary cause in here? There's another secondary cause. So first secondary cause is God permits Satan to take away everything from Job except his life. Satan. But then there's the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Okay? So, let's look at verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters are eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Bless the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay. So his sons and daughters die. How, how did they die? A house fell on them, and then these raiders, these Sabaeans and Chaldeans. Okay. So... Do we even see do we even see Satan directly causing things to happen in this passage of scripture? No, we see acts of nature and foreign armies coming in and raiding and doing what foreign armies do. They raid and they pillage and they do things like that. So we have to ask the question Who's the primary cause of all of Job's suffering? God. Who's the secondary cause of all of Job's suffering? Satan. Does Satan even do it directly? Or is there like a third cause? The wind, the house, the Sabaeans. But notice what Job says in verse one, in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. And notice what he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who does Job blame for his troubles? Not God. Who do you attribute to? The Lord has taken away. Did he say, Satan has come and attacked me? In Job's mind, who's the... In Job's mind, he only sees primary cause. God is doing this to me. And yes, God is doing that to him, but is God directly doing that to him? No, he's allowing it to happen through Satan. Does Job know that? No, all Job knows is that God is behind everything. So you get to the very end of the book. And it's interesting how Job, at the very end of the book, so go to chapter 42, verse 11. Again, Job doesn't know what has happened. Job, so if you look at the structure of Job, chapters 1 and 2 are prose, right? You see that in your Bible? And then chapter 3 gets to poetry. That's where all Job starts lamenting, his friends start coming to him. And everything starts to get, you know, unravel with his three friends. And then a fourth friend comes. And then you get to uh, Psalms here. Let's get back to Job. Then you get back to the end, chapter 42. It goes back to prose. And look at verse 10 and 11. 
The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Does anybody have a footnote there for the word evil? Anybody have a different word there? Notice what it said. All the evil that who brought upon Job? The Lord. The Lord. So let me ask you a question. Who brought evil upon Job? The Lord. Did he do it directly? No. Did he allow it to happen through Satan? Yes. Did Job know that it was Satan? No. All Job thought it was is this was God. And so what the story of Job and the story of Joseph and his brothers shows us is that God can sovereignly ordain something to happen without directly causing evil to happen. If anything good is going to happen, God's going to directly do the good. If anything bad's going to happen, God's going to permit it to happen. And that brings up a whole other question we're going to deal with in just a moment. So, so is everybody tracking with me? Okay, now let's talk about Judas for a moment. Luke twenty two twenty two, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Let me ask you a question. Was it predetermined in God's sovereign decree for Judas to betray Jesus? Did Judas act freely to do what he wanted to do? Yes. Now, it does say Satan entered him. But my point is, is did God stick a gun to Judas's head and say, you will betray Jesus? Same thing with Joseph and his brothers. Judas did what he wanted to do based upon the wickedness of his own heart. And in doing that, he was fulfilling God's sovereign plan, which was evil. To betray Jesus is evil, right? But Judas does evil that God determined for him to do. Now, some people say, well, you know, Judas could have had a chance at some point. He could have stopped and repented and, and, and not gone according to this plan. But the Bible makes it very clear that it was determined. Okay, so let me ask you another question. Was the cross of Christ also predetermined by God? Okay, yes. Whose plan was it for Jesus to die on the cross? Who nailed Jesus to the cross? Okay. Do you see primary and secondary? Who's the primary cause for Jesus dying on the cross? God. Who's the secondary cause that carry out the evil? Okay. Is the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, being, being murdered on a cross, is that evil? Yes. Is it God's plan? Yes. God planned evil without directly doing evil, but had secondary causes do the evil, and they did what they wanted to do at the same time fulfilling God's decree. Okay, now, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? I'm glad you asked, because we've got two verses in Acts. So, the cross. In Acts 2, 22-23. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 
He's standing up and he's talking to the Jewish people that were there, that were in the crowd saying, crucify him. So he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, and here's the point, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. Was it God's definite plan to have Jesus die? But who killed him? Peter says, you, you're responsible for killing him. Now, it was God's definite plan, but you carried it out. So it was God's determined plan, primary cause, to have Jesus die on the cross. The Jews were the ones that actually put him to death, doing what they wanted to do out of the wickedness of their heart. Now, in Acts chapter 4, the early church is going to pray, and, and we're going to see four, four actors, four human actors, carrying out the cross. Okay? For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Okay, here's number one, Herod. Number two, Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles, that would be the Roman soldiers. And the peoples of Israel, that would be the Jewish leaders. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was the cross the predestined plan of God? Yes. Who carried it out? Herod. Pilate, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish leaders. So let's go back to the confession for a moment. God sovereignly ordains everything that comes about. And if anything that comes about is good, God directly brings it about. If there's anything that comes about that is evil or wicked, God permitted it to come about for his purposes. And in that, in that statement, there's three fences. Number one, God's not the author of sin. Number two, God does not violate the free will of creatures. They act according to their nature. And number three, God often accomplishes this through secondary causes, not directly doing those things. Okay. Let's stop, take a breath. Do you have any questions about this at this point? And if you do, I may have an answer to them as, further, as we go further through. But I want to make sure there's, there's no questions. That's just paragraph one. All right, so that's why I said we're only doing two paragraphs tonight. So let's do paragraph two. This paragraph is going to set up the doctrine of predestination that we're going to talk about next week. And this is going to talk about the way God does not predestine. It's going to bring up what we would call the Arminian foreknowledge view of predestination. And so um, we kind of have to understand how God doesn't do it before we look about how God does it. So they kind of they kind of introduce how God doesn't do it before they talk about how God does it. So here's here's um, chapter three, God's decree, uh, paragraph two. God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, his decree of anything is not based on foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. Okay, does that make sense? God does not make his decree based upon foreseeing something. So for example, let me give you an example. It's 1984 and Sally, okay, it's 19, well, I don't know why, 1984, 1985. It's in the 80s. 
Sally is at youth camp. And Sally is under strong conviction of the Lord that she's a sinner. It's the last night of camp. There's an altar call. The gospel's preached. She goes forward. She kneels down with tears. And she gives her life to Jesus on July 15th, 1987. Okay. What some people would say is in eternity past, God looked down the corridors of time to that point in time in 1987. God foresaw that Sally would become a Christian. And when God saw that, he ratified her decision by choosing her because he saw what she was going to do. Now, if she lived her entire life and never trusted Christ, God would never see her trusting Christ and God would never choose her to trust so the foreknowledge view that they're arguing against here is saying that's not how God makes his decree. God does not make his decree based upon what he sees is going to happen and then responds to it. Okay? Now, let's go to Romans chapter 8 because there is the word foreknowledge or foreknew. So what, is, what does it mean for God to foreknow something or someone? Probably a better way to say it. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll just ask a question right before we read the text. So let me ask a question. Does God foreknow everything that's going to happen? Does God know in advance? No. Yes. Nobody disagrees with that. The question is, does God foreordain everything that happens? There's where the difference is. Some people would say, yes, God sees everything that's going to happen. And he makes a decision based upon what he sees is going to happen. Others would say God only sees what's going to happen because he foreordained what's going to happen. There's no difference between what God sees and what God foreordains because it's going to happen. And here's the, here's the thing. If, <laughs> I'll just make it very simple. If God foreordains something to happen, can it happen otherwise? If God foreordained or predetermined for something to happen, can it happen otherwise than what God foreordained to happen? No. Can it turn out any differently? Well, can somebody choose differently than what? Not if God foreordained it. Okay. Yes. I'm just making you think tonight. Let's look at this passage of Scripture, Romans 8. Let's start in verse. Let's start in verse twenty-nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called; and those whom he called, he also justified; and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So you got two words there. You got foreknew and predestined. Some people make the mistake of saying that this is a noun. God has foreknowledge. Yes, God has foreknowledge of all things, but that's not a noun. That's a, that's a verb, right? Those whom he foreknew. Those are people that God foreknew. Does that mean just God just knew about these people in advance? To foreknow something in the Bible means to place electing love on them in advance. The, the word foreknowledge does not just mean to know in advance, but if you trace its meaning throughout the scriptures, it means to love 
or know someone intimately. Okay. There is a Hebrew word. If you watch Seinfeld, you probably know what it is. Why is he bringing Seinfeld into this? Yada. Yada, yada, yada. Not Yoda, but yada. Yada, it means to know. Now, that word can just mean I know some facts about the Denver Nuggets. I know Larry Gertner. I've known him for almost 19 years. I knew tonight he was almost 85, and I don't know why I knew that, but, but, but I knew that. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, it said, Adam yadad his wife. Actually, in chapter 4, Adam yadad his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. So does yada mean more than just no? Sometimes the word yada can have the word of, to know intimately. To know in a very special way. The way only a husband and wife, quote unquote, it was, it was used for sexual intercourse in the Old Testament to know his wife. So for God to know you doesn't mean that God just has knowledge of you. It means to set his special electing love upon you. So for example, in Jeremiah 1.5, he's talking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now is God just saying, hey, I knew about you, Jeremiah. I knew you were going to exist. Is that basically what God's saying? Is he's saying, I knew you in a special way that I was going to set you apart. I was going to choose you. I knew you intimately, even before you were born. Okay. Amos 3, 1 through 2. Hear the words of the Lord. He has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So he's talking to Israel here. You only, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You're the only family I've known out of all the earth. Yes, Teresa. Well, okay, so all of this is saying he foreknew, well, he created it all. Yes. So he had to have foreknew. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just clarifying. You're, you're right. Now, as God's saying, you're the only family, Israelites, you're the only nation I know about in all the earth. I don't know about the Egyptians. I don't know about the Babylonians. When he says, you're the only, you're the only nation I've known. What's he saying there? Is he just like, you're the only nation I know about, or what? You're the only nation I have chosen and entered into this relationship with. So, to foreknow does not mean to look in advance to see what someone's going to do and then make your choice based upon that. I call that ratification as opposed to predestination. And we'll talk about that next week, but... If God merely looks down to see what you're going to do, you've already made the choice. God just ratifies the decision that he sees you making. So who's really the, that's not really choosing. You've already made the choice. God just ratifies what he sees you doing. And, and, and we're saying the Bible doesn't teach that God makes his decree or his choices based upon what he foresees is going to happen. Now, Let's turn over one book, I mean one, not one book, one chapter to Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to throw this out there. Not to um, 
make you nervous, but yeah, to make you nervous. Um, so Romans chapter 9, 10 through 13, Jacob and Esau. Guys, remember Jacob and Esau? They were twins, right? <clears throat> Had the same mother and father, right? Who came out first? The red hairy guy, Esau. Esau means red hairy man. I always think of Elmo coming out of the womb or something. He's red and hairy. He came out first. <clears throat> Jacob came out second. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Esau a wicked man? Yes. Was Jacob a wicked man? You could almost argue that Jacob is more wicked than Esau. So when, when I'm about to read, this has caused a lot of controversy, but I want you to notice the qualifications in the text itself about these two men. So Romans chapter 9, verse 10. <coughs> Excuse me. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Here's the point. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, so let's ask the question. When did the election of these twins happen? Before they were born. Why did God choose one over the other? What was it not based on? There's two things he said there. Not because of them doing what? Anything. Okay, it wasn't like God looked down and said, okay, Jacob's going to do good. Esau's going to do bad. I'm going to choose Jacob because I'm seeing Jacob do good. I'm not going to choose Esau because I see Esau doing bad. Does he, it says that, right, before they had done anything good or bad. And the second thing is not by works. Almost the same thing. What's the only reason? You guys tell me. Read your Bible. What's the only reason? It's in the second half of verse 11. It's not because they've done anything good or bad. Not because of works. It's an order of God's purpose of election. So why did so here's the question. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Answer, because God chose Jacob over Esau. It was his purpose. Now, do we have to know why God did that? No. We do know why he what it's not based on. What's it not based on? God foreseeing them doing anything good or bad. In other words, God's choice of the two boys was not contingent on something God seeing them do but in making his decision on what he foresaw. God made the choice because of it was sovereign choice to do so. And it wasn't based upon anything he foresaw the boys doing. Okay? So there are three theological options regarding God's eternal decree and sovereign decree. There's three options you can, you can hold to. And I'll give you all three of them. The, the first two are not in the 1689 confession. So I'll give you. So first, modern day, they're called open theists. We talked about that last week. Those that don't believe in the God knows the future. Back during the time of the 1689, they were a group called the Socinians. I don't expect you to remember that. The Socinians were a group in Britain during that time. And basically what they were arguing is this. 
God cannot foresee, God cannot do something. God cannot foresee free choices or actions by humans because by their nature as free, they're uncertain until they're actually carried out. So do you understand what they're saying? If you have, if you have free will, there are a million different variables you could go. There's a million different ways you could go. And God can't know what you're going to do until you do it. So God can't foresee the future because for you to truly have freedom, you haven't done that yet. And, and at the last minute, you could choose differently than what God could. So God can't foresee what you're going to do. And so the problem with that, well, there's a lot of problems with that. is that God can actually foresee all contingencies. So think about that. Let's just, let's just play the game. Let's say that there was a million different contingencies a person could have. Cannot God know all those a million contingencies? Now, we would say God has a sovereign decree, so he's decreed, the, he's decreed what's going to happen. Not God learns it or God knows it or God predicts it or God guesses it. But even if, let's just say you, God foresees it because he didn't ordain it. God still has enough knowledge to know what all the possibilities are. An open theist says God doesn't even know the possibilities because they haven't happened yet. Their argument is God can't foresee what hasn't happened yet because it hasn't happened yet. Okay. I would say that's a heresy. Because basically you're denying God's ability to, to know anything about the future. Okay, so that's option number one, open theism or Socinianism, which we would call a heresy. Second, the second one is not a heresy. This would be an Arminian view. Arminians. They admit that God foresees actions and choices, but does not ordain or determine them. He responds to the free will actions of people or ratifies what he sees them doing. That was the thing I said earlier. With Sally, and basically trusting Christ in 1987, the Arminian position is God, God sees her choosing, and when God sees her doing that with her free will, he then ratifies her decision. Okay, so let me just tell you what Jacob, so Arminians are named after Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius was a student of Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza was the successor of John Calvin. So this is in the Dutch Reformed Church in the early 16, late, late 1500s, early 1600s. So this is what Jacob Arminius taught. Quote, God decreed to save and damn certain particular persons. This decree, this decree has its foundation in the foreknowledge of God, by which he knew from all eternity those individuals who would, through his provenient, and that means going before grace, believe, and through his subsequent grace would persevere, by which foreknowledge he likewise knew those who would not believe and persevere. So Jacob Arminius was the first one to come along and say, God looked down the corridors of time and, and he saw those who believed and would continue to believe. And those that he saw believe and continue to believe, he ratified their decision. Those that didn't believe or those that lost their salvation, you know, God saw that and that was his plan as well. So it's mainly God responding to what he foresees happening. Okay. So John Wesley also said, John Wesley was a famous Arminian. John Wesley said this. He's got a sermon on predestination. He says this, Who are predestined? None but those whom God foreknew as believers. 
God does know who will believe, but he also calls inwardly and outwardly by the Spirit and the Word, those he foreknows will believe. God knows who will believe. God doesn't choose who will believe. God knows who will believe. And when he sees them believing in the future, he chooses them based upon what he sees. Okay, so that's the Arminian position. Foreknowledge, conditional election. Okay. Third is what would be like the Reformed or Calvinistic view that comes from the 1689. Not only does God foresee whatever will come to pass, but in fact God ordained and determined from eternity that they would come to pass. Okay, so let's skip, how much time do we have left here? I'm going to skip that Luther quote. You can go back and read it. What I want to really do here is understand some terminology because I want to bring this to a close in case you guys have some questions. So let's, let's talk about terminology because there is some terminology that we use and it's, it's appropriate to kind of nuance the terminology, okay? So here's the first question. Does God decree, ordain, or predetermine what comes to pass? Those three words, I think, all mean the same thing. Decree, ordain, predetermine. Or the second, the second um, option is, does God merely allow or permit what comes to pass? Okay, is there a difference between ordaining and permitting? Okay. Now, let's say you hold to the second view. Let's say... I don't buy that God ordains. I like the idea that God allows or permits. Okay. And I'll, I'll grant that to you, but you still haven't gotten God off the hook. Because let me, let me challenge that for a moment. If God had a sovereign decree before the creation of the world, and let's say he foresaw all the evil that would take place, and he's all-powerful, then you've got to ask a question. Why did he not either stop the evil from happening or minimize it? If God merely allowed it to happen, why did he allow it to happen? Let's ask a question. Could God stop it if he wanted to when he created the world, knowing it was going to happen? Or could God at least minimize it? He didn't. Why? Because you said that it goes for good later on. Something good will come so, even if you concede that I don't like God ordaining all things that come to pass, God only permitting some things to pass, you still haven't got God off the hook because God is permitting something to happen that's not good. When so, there's two answers to that. That this is some atheists will bring these things up. Well, it must be God's not powerful enough to stop evil. Is that true? Is God not powerful enough to stop it? God's powerful, then okay, if God's powerful enough to stop it and he doesn't, then number two, he must not be loving enough to stop it. God must not be powerful enough and God must not be loving enough. And if God's powerful enough to stop it and he doesn't, he must not love. Okay. So you, all of us are faced, regardless of what view you hold to, all of us are faced with the fact that there is evil in the world that's not being stopped when it could be stopped. Just go back to where all sinners? Right. God is not the author of that evil. God is permitting that evil. But in the same time in permitting that evil, he's not stopping that evil. He's powerful enough to stop it. He's loving enough to stop it. Why doesn't he stop it? And nobody has an answer to that question. If you can answer that question, you're smarter than like theologians that have lived for the past 2,000 years. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things that only God knows. He's not obligated to give us the reasons why he does things. Now, the things we're responsible for are what he's written in his word. I'm responsible for obeying. I'm basically supposed to stay in your lane. Your lane is God has given you a written revelation of what you're supposed to know, and you'll be held accountable for this, the scriptures. Are you to be held accountable for God's secret will of how he ordains things and works things out? No, we don't know that. And God's under no obligation to give us that information. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. How should knowing about God's eternal, what, what should knowing about God's eternal decree produce in us? So how should we respond to this? Well, hopefully it's not, I don't like this, or this doesn't sound fair or whatever. Let's just give, let me give you three ways to respond to this. I think first would just be humility. Let me say it this way. You will never win if you fight against God's sovereignty. You'll never win. So you might as well humble yourself and realize that God has a sovereign plan. Now that doesn't mean you're lazy. That doesn't mean that you're like fatalistic. But it does mean this, John 3, 27. John, this is John the Baptist. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. Everything you have is a gift from God that he's given you. And God did not have to give you anything, but he chooses to give you good things. And so the very fact that you have life and breath and salvation is a gift from Almighty God that should lead us to humility. So knowing about God's sovereign decree should, should humble us to realize, I, I can't control God. I can't fight against God. I can't thwart his purposes. I need to trust and humble myself before a God who is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. But it also gives us assurance, and that may sound countercultural. But let me ask you a question. Do you want to worship a God who doesn't know the future? Do you want to worship a God that doesn't have a plan? Do you want to worship a God who works on the fly and says, ooh, that took me by surprise. I better work around this way to get this worked out. And I, can... I mean, do you want that kind of God? So many years ago, I won't mention the pastor's name. He's a, he's a famous pastor out of Texas. I was at a, this was at my former church. We were at a men's study and they showed a video of this pastor's talk. And I came away with it pretty bothered. All the other guys were really into it. And, and I came away bothered. And this is what he was saying. I remember the analogy. He was talking about game of chess. He was talking about spiritual warfare. And he says, spiritual warfare is like a game of chess. God makes his move. Satan makes his move. Then Satan makes his move, and God's not quite sure what Satan's going to do, but then God makes his move. Satan makes his move, God makes his move. And it was almost like they were equal and opposing forces working together. And then he did say, in the end, God wins, but it almost made it sound like God was, every time Satan made a move, God was reacting on the chessboard to what Satan was doing. And it would be like this. God's not playing chess God created the chessboard and the outcome. I don't know what a better analogy is, but it almost made it sound like God was responding in time to what Satan was doing and wasn't quite sure, like, 
Like, yeah, God's going to win out in the end, but Satan's really like throwing him for a loop here in the middle of things. And I'm like, I don't like that because it makes it sound like Satan's equal with God. No, it gives us assurance that God's in control. And then I think ultimately it should give us hope. Why? We may not understand it, but Romans 8.28 says what? We know that in all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good. So you could be going through suffering and pain, but that may be God's way of bringing about good. Remember what I said with Joseph and his brothers? You meant evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about the saving of many people. So I'm going to stop there because I felt like last week we like went past time, and I want to give you guys some time for questions. So we got 10 minutes left. Any questions, comments, or snide remarks? Deep into the pool tonight. It's okay to ask questions or disagree or ask for clarification. You don't have to take it hook, line, and sinker. You can wrestle with it. And Come on now. After a lesson like this, there's got to be at least one question. <clears throat> if not... You guys have it all figured out and settled, and you're ready to go. It takes a while for the wheels to turn. Maybe you'll have a question like at midnight. You'll wake up in the middle of the night like, oh, I was going to ask him that. Don't text me at midnight. I have, my phone's on. Do not disturb anyway, so if you do, I won't answer. Um, I may answer it the next morning. You can set the text. To, you can set up your text to be delivered. All right, if there's no other questions, then I will um, close us in prayer. And um, we will trust in the sovereignty of God to work all things out for his good, our good and his glory. So, Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, I know it's, a, it's kind of a mind-blowing concept to think about your eternal decree. But, Lord, help us to realize that you're sovereign. You're not the author of sin. You don't force us against our will. And you do use secondary causation to bring about your plan. Lord, we don't know exactly how all this works. The secret things belong to you, but Lord, we do want to have assurance. We want to have hope. We want to have humility that to know that you do have a plan. And Lord, we can look back over our lives and see your, your hand at work. We can see your plan. And Lord, we know that you're moving history to its fulfillment. And Lord, we want to worship a God that has the end figured out and that you are sovereign over all things. And so Lord, um, help us to trust you during the hard times to know that you're working things out according to the counsel of your will and that you're a good God and you're doing it for our good and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.